Do you hear that? <laughs> oh, you suck. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I should leave that on um, the entire time, but I'll leave it on as, until it uh, annoys us too much. And then maybe I'll just put it in post for the whole episode. <laughs> what is it? it doesn't go anywhere is the problem. It just is like... No, it's just jingles. Jingle bells. Okay, do you want to run maybe the, the header music? There we go. <laughs> They're out of sync. <laughs> You're never <laughs> working together. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Um, not quite. <laughs> Hello, welcome. Oh Hey, welcome back. Well, welcome back to us, I think. Not welcome back to the listeners, because Yoram has still been there, and it's just me who's back, so Yoram should say, Yoram, welcome me back. Welcome back, Tegan. Welcome <laughs> back to the say, podcast. Can you please turn the freaking jet bells off? Yoram, <laughs> turn the bells off. They suck. They suck so much. Yeah, they're, they're uh, turned off now. <laughs> okay, and it took us, what, like nine seconds before we got to Christmas. Um, yeah. Um, it, 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 it's not a good idea. Yes, uh, welcome back welcome to Welcome back to the Plants and Pipettes podcast. Um, we've had intermission for the past three or four weeks now. Um, yeah, I think four weeks. Storytelling with Yoram, where Yoram like, gently reads you to sleep every night, or I don't know, maybe you listen in your car or listen in the lab, and then hopefully there's less sleeping involved. <laughs> um, but yeah. Because we've been busy. We've been so, so busy. Yeah, we've been very busy. I think like I've been less, much less busy than you were. Uh, I mm. think I, I tried to remember what I've been doing the last couple of weeks. And the main thing I did was being sick. <laughs> yeah, I've done that too, though. So, I mean, you're not really winning. Yeah. You and I are both sounding a little bit nasally at the moment. And there might be some coughing involved because... Yeah, I'm, say, I'm already saying sorry for all the coughs that I don't edit out um, because I, I miss them. Um, because there might be a few... <laughs> And I would like to comment that, like, Yoram should be sick because Yoram has a small child, and when you have a small child, that's how it is, basically. Yeah, but I thought it's only when they enter Kita, but it's already now. Um, yeah. And uh, from the three of us, he did the best. Like, he got this, I guess, the same virus because he had it first. He had, like, high fever for a day, was a little bit cranky, and then afterwards he was fine again. And then um, Doro had it. Um, took a little bit longer and then I got it and I think it must have like strengthened up the virus must have must have mutated a little bit because I'm like still all puffy up, puffed up and and um, not feeling too great um and it's like a theme with people with kids though right like the kids get it they get it for a couple of days and then the kids are like bouncing around just in yeah. time for you to be like feeling like death yeah 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 so I don't know how they do it I'm a little bit jealous that I can't do it like that like that I got sick I got sick also with something which was a virus there goes your arm already um, because somebody some people came to work when they were sick which I am not a fan of I yeah. was kind of annoyed because they got me sick just in time for me to finish my old job so I was completely dying during my whole moving process um, yeah. for those of you who don't know I've changed jobs changed career changed continent changed flat which i think is necessary if you change continent does it count I mean, as really a continent i mean well that's not really continent change country fine yeah i mean i mean you, you moved over England, water 
So I moved over water. I don't believe that Europe is a con- continent anyway. Like, fight me on that. But you don't have any sea surrounding your landmass. So no, Eurasia, don't. yes, I'll buy that. Eurasia, Africa, I'll buy that. But like, Europe as a continent is a made-up invention, and you're all wrong. Yeah, not me. I I don't believe that Europe exists. And anyway, now I'm in beautiful UK, and anyway, they seem to be going towards Brexit, so maybe part of the Brexit agreement will be that <laughs> the UK has to be its own continent, and that's the only, like, it'll be, that will be the deal, like, it won't be a no-deal Brexit, it'll be, like, the only deal is that There will the be UK a continental rift, and, like, a new, like, splitting yeah. off, and a new, new trench in the, in the ocean between us, um, yeah, maybe, and maybe I'm that will like, be the solution. <laughs> I'm starting on my personal Instagram account uh, a small series of like sad things in in Britain and I think I'm going to be like the declining days of of Britain like a little like photo series like today I saw a pile of like hot chips just on the floor I thought oh it's, But that's, it's very meaningful It was like 10 years ago when I was there there was already like common <laughs> Shut up Yaram this is significant it's a statement about this um people and about politics and I don't know I wonder how these things happen <laughs> like you order a, a box of chips and then you eat some sometimes even not some and then you just leave the box there and go I mean it's expensive it's like five quid and No, the point of this was it was actually like in a small like it was in a pyre. It was really reminiscent of a funeral pyre. And I thought like these chips are really a symbol. I stopped, I took a photo and then I okay, then I walked on. It wasn't that exciting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so um I, today I've been already recording a video for my like ex work um where I'm continuing to making YouTube videos for them. Um, Which means you're still working for them, kind of, yeah. Yeah, but I I'll get paid for that, so that's um it's not that so, I'm doing like so the it's exactly P- the definition of work. Yeah, so not like the classic <laughs> PhD thing where you're like yeah, technically I'm out of a contract, but I'm still like working in the lab like most mm. weeks and sometimes on the weekends like it's I'm not getting paid, but it's for a paper that will surely certainly come eventually. Um, yeah. So like it's not this type of situation. It's like very tightly regulated situation where I know um, that it won't. I like be in vain. that of my my new job as well. It's like it's quite defined. Um, I go in at eight thirty, which I really like. I'm an early riser, so I get in at eight thirty, and then I get out of there at four thirty, and I'm just done. Like, yeah. This is quite. It's a new feeling. It's very strange. Um, Maybe you get But flashbacks and you'll just like set up a lab at home f- to do some like long night sampling of your plants or something. Well, I mean, part of the reason I wanted to try this job is because I do have a lot of things I like to do at home. I like doing our blog and our podcast and I like doing sewing and photograph and like I like I have many other things I like. I mean, now it's it's winter, so it's like indoor hobbies, but but still I have hours and hours of time to just do things finally something on the other end of the work-life balance it's not just work <laughs> although honestly i don't think i was working so hard at my old job don't tell my old boss but like <laughs> it was it was fine it was like i think i had an okay work-life balance i actually went to a seminar about work-life balance where they were supposed to teach you how to have a work-life balance because researchers um yeah obviously tend to have quite a poor work-life balance there's too much work because you tend to be working your own hours you're basically working for yourself um, and I came out of it feeling that I wasn't working enough because all the stories that the other people in the seminar were telling it was just horrible like working hours and hours working every single weekend both days of the weekend um, 
only talking to their significant other about science, not talking about anything else. Like yeah. just all of this stuff where I was like, okay, um, yeah. And I'm sure there's some of you who are listening out there who are in that situation. And I want to say if it's for a short time, if it's like you're finishing your PhD or you're like working for revisions of a paper or it's just been like a couple of months, fine, keep doing it, work hard, do it. But if it's happening month after month, year after year, yeah, and from the beginning it. and no matter where your project is, like I can understand if you have like a tight um, like period during a project where you have to take samples all night and you have to do that for, I don't know, 30 days straight and you have to take samples every two hours, no matter what. I can understand how you stay um, in, the, in, in at work or if you have to do a ton of uh, an, uh, analysis that has to be done before a conference, that's fine. But if it, if it becomes like the default state that you are constantly like 14 hours at work and then seven days a week, um, then you should really like step back and, and see if you can change something about that situ situation because eventually it will get to you and it won't be pr pretty. Well, I mean, the thing is like, there's a lot of resources out there now which are focusing on making sure you have mental health checks and that you work to maybe improve your efficiency or, or manage your time better or learn to say no or whatever the thing is to make it so that you can have that, like do the science, but also get to go home. Yeah. And yeah, it can be done. I believe in it. <laughs> I'm saying that as somebody who is now in a different job, so maybe. Yeah, same for me. I mean, I, I have now become terrible examples to everybody. Yeah, I'm, or good examples of saying like you don't have to stay in there. Like, hang in there if it's something that you really want to do, but don't force yourself to stay in the system if you actually prefer doing something else. Because like we both left the system. Um, I did it a little bit more than you did, um, but still, we're out. And it's fine. Like, there is life outside. <laughs> I mean, it's a bit hard to tell for me, right? Like, I'm out yeah, for two a weeks. Week, so, two weeks, yeah. You know, maybe, like, week three is when I have my mental breakdown and start, yeah, as you said, like, setting up a lab in my home <laughs> and pipetting all of my substances and we'll see. <laughs> Your morning coffee is only, like, uh, prepared with a pipette. Yeah. Okay. I actually... <laughs> actually met somebody at the like we have a we have free coffee because all companies should have free coffee um and i met somebody at the coffee break area and he had like one of these aeropress machines and he was telling me that he because we have free coffee but the coffee is terrible and he was then <laughs> explaining to me that he had done the scientific experiment where he took the beans out of the coffee machine like somehow liberated those beans i think it's locked up normally ground them himself and used them in his aeropress and he found out the beans are not the problem the machine is the problem so he's like from now on i'm using my aeropress so yeah i thought that was like a nice example of a scientist in the wild just like doing the thing <laughs> but this is how it should be like use science wherever applicable um and just yeah benefit from it from from all the training yeah. I mean, I really like this this saying about all kids being scientists, and then I don't know society beating it out of them at some point. Yeah, I'm I'm uh, observing that now. Uh, right now, gravity and just the noise of hitting two things together is the experiment mm. of the week. Um, One so of that's my other fun. colleagues was telling me that her child put rice up his nose. <laughs> that's like highly experimental. <laughs> I was like. He's a scientist. I mean, what do you expect? You're a scientist. You made another scientist. And she was like, mm, not ideal. <laughs> Had to go to the emergency room. But oh. yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's how it is with kids, right? Yeah. I uh, imagine. No trips to the emergency room yet here. Um, Ooh, it'll come for you at one stage. Yeah, I guess so. I guess it's fine. 
Okay, shall we do some signs? Yeah, I think we should announce first that this is a special Christmas episode and play the bells again. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, this is a special Christmas episode and here are the bells. <laughs> but not for long, right? No, that's enough, I think. Okay. Um, uh, just imagine all of all the... Eh? No, I'm just the, for the listeners. Imagine having these bells the entire time. We, I don't want to do that, really. I mean, I, I could do that in post to the listeners, but then I would be cruel and mean. So maybe I'm, I yeah, probably won't. Yeah, we could won't. just make it that they have to suffer through it, but we never had to suffer through it. So then just do it in post. Like that's what <laughs> I want. I want to make it an unenjoyable experience. Yes, that's what we're here uh, for. If our sniffling, coughing, coughing, and all the other noises we're already making, yeah, as if, already, yeah, if that's not enough. Oh, I'm really struggling to talk today. Yeah, same. Like as I recorded the video already today, I'm. I feel like I talked my share of words today. So um, there will be some silences between us, and I think that's fine. Um, it's gonna start. <laughs> it's the paper of the week. Um, this pay this week I'm doing the absence of complex one implicates the rearrangement of the respir respiratory chain in European mistletoe by um, Sankler et al from the Brown Lab. And I am doing the absence of complex one is associated with diminished respiratory chain function in European mistletoe, which is by McLean et al and the corresponding on that is Etienne Meyer. Um, <gasps> Two papers on complex one. <laughs> Ooh, on mitochondria. Um, just before we go into what we're doing this week, I want to make a quick disclaimer, and that's that I know and Yoram knows the people on the paper that I'm talking about today. We're actually close friends with one of the authors on the paper, and one of them is our old boss. So just to keep that in mind, um, disclaimer. Yeah. And what we're doing... Um what we're doing today is um, we wanted to change things up a little bit. Uh, we got a little bit bored with our old format of just like one of us presenting a paper and we wanted to con uh, begin um, presenting both of us the same paper so we, that we have a little bit more to discuss. And already on the first episode, we're doing it even a little bit more different. Um, we're doing yeah. two papers on the same topic um, at the same time. Yeah, so we noticed that like with the previous way we were doing things, it was a big monologue of one person doing a lot of information on one paper, which made it less of a conversation. Also, neither Yorama or I are particularly good at listening to the other person. So this way we get to have more of a natural conversation. We are very good at talking with each other, but we're not good to just like <laughs> shutting up while the other person talks. So hopefully this will work out better in the end. Yeah. But today it's a mix up, yeah. Today it's a mix-up and we will come in the end um, um, to the reasons behind it. Um, I guess we just jump into the introduction, right? Um, yeah, I think Yoram has to do the first introduction. And I want to have a disclaimer here. I'm a chloroplast person, not a mito person, but Yoram is kind of a mito person. No, I, like, I, I worked with mito in the beginning of my research work, but then I also changed to the chloroplast. And to be fair, I like the chloroplast better because the isolation of a chloroplast in the lab is much easier than the isolation of a mitochondria. Uh, so also, chloroplasts are objectively better, I would say. <laughs> we can we can discuss this at the end of, of, of this paper, um, all these two papers. Um, 
By the way, actually, if any of you have noticed, if you follow the blog and you've noticed that our papers on the blog are a little bit too chloroplast heavy, feel free to um, suggest us some research or send us some papers which are a bit more mito, peroxisome, vacuole, ER, anything like that. Um, Because we do both have that bias, which is a little bit concerning, I would say. Pretty strong bias, actually. yeah, on so, with the mito. <laughs> let's, so mitochondria, they are really important. Um, they are the powerhouse of the cell, after all. This um, is true. And uh, <clears throat> mitochondria, they're found in um, most, in all eukaryotes, um, and yeah, not in prokaryotes. They're found in all eukaryotes, but that's a lot. That's like unicellular organisms up to like us humans and animals and also in plants. Um and they're so very important because because they do something it's called oxfos, um, which is oxidative phosphorylation, um, which is a chain of reactions. And this is uh, essentially what uh, cellular respiration is, because um, it takes um, molecular energy, like molecular um, molecularly bound energy, and then has a transfer chain. Um, and in the end, electrons are transferred to oxygen to, uh, molecules um, and water is formed. And that's why we have to breathe in oxygen because it's burned in the in the uh, mitochondria f- during energy production. And it's the same for plants. They also have to breathe in oxygen, usually during the night, but it also happens during the day. And um, they burn like they burn molecular fuel um, and use oxygen to do that. And all of this happens in the mitochondria. And uh, the main player... The purpose, oh hmm? yeah, the purpose of that basically is to make ATP, which is kind of like the, I don't know, the energy storage unit in all cells, basically. So like yeah. more little... Pretty much any process. Tiny batteries. Yeah, it's like the, I think somewhere is told it's like the energy currency. Um, energy currency. It's Bitcoin for my, for cells. <laughs> uh, ATP is the is Bitcoin of, of the cells, yeah. Do you know that mining Bitcoin is like very energetically yes. costly and it's actually can be contributing to like... Yeah. Energy use. Did there's, you know that? I never knew that. There's a lot of debate of uh, as of how, how much it is. Um, some say mm-hmm. it's as much as like small states. Others say this is exaggerated and it's not that bad. But it's mm. still it's still pretty bad. Um, and it's bad by design. But it's a okay. whole different topic. But yeah, Bitcoin don't don't do Bitcoin. It's terrible. Really? Um, <laughs> I don't know. Like maybe research that for yourself. Sometimes Yoram has strong opinions, and you shouldn't just follow <laughs> him blindly because you're a scientist. Just, Even if you're just, not a scientist by profession, you're a scientist. <laughs> just go to Reddit into any Bitcoin oh my God. subreddit. Never no. go to Reddit. Reddit is definitely bad. Like yeah, but Bitcoin, Bitcoin is from might Reddit. be bad. <laughs> my point Reddit is, is definitely evil. Go in there, and you see anyone who like is really into Bitcoin is also a terrible person. <laughs> And by proxy to me, that means Bitcoin is terrible. Oh my god! Did you see the new Elon Musk car? Yeah. Isn't that isn't that beautiful? It's and then beautiful. apparently they threw ball bearings at the at the um, windscreen to show like, oh look, it's bulletproof, and then they just both shattered. <laughs> I've never like Elon Musk's failure makes me happy. Does that make yeah. me a bad person? No, no. Elon Musk is also not a good guy. 
Um, okay, Bitcoin is bad, ATP is good, we all need ATP <laughs> to do energy things in the cell, and the mitochondria makes the ATP, and it does this by Oxfos, and the Oxfos occurs using complexes. Yoram, take it away. Yeah, complexes. Um, so you have to imagine there's like a membrane system in the mitochondria, and in the mitochondrial membrane system, there sit these complexes, and they're called complexes because they're made of many subunits, like many proteins. So when we usually talk about proteins and enzymes, we have like individual enzymes or proteins in mind um, that do a certain task but for some tasks you need many of them that all work together like a big machine and these are the complexes and there is uh, four complexes um, main complexes in there then there's a um, another thing that's called cytochrome c and in the end there's uh, atp synthase which makes atp um, and all of them have to work in, together in a chain reaction to have the whole thing work um, I just, just as a quick comment about the complexity of those complexes. So, um, complex one, our friend Etienne, who um, is writing one of the papers we're talking about today, he works a lot on complex one. And I remember him coming and asking me about how many proteins photosystem one and photosystem two had, because he thought that maybe complex one had more proteins than all of like the, <laughs> the chloroplast membrane proteins. And he was feeling really, really, really smug. But... Thank goodness Photosystem 1 and Photosystem 2 were like, oh dear, awesome. we're beating it. Um, yeah. Anyway, complex one is very complex and also very, very important. It is very important because it um, it's, it's the only one that can recycle from these four um, complexes. It can recycle NADH. And if you did like high school biology, you've probably seen this. It's a very important um, metabolite um, used in, in all kinds of metabolic reactions and it needs to be recycled and complex one is one of the one uh, um, the complexes that can recycle it um, uh, in the mitochondria and at the same time uh, complex one um, pumps protons across the membranes which is important for making ATP so complex one is a very key player in there and it's the biggest complex out of all of them and for all of that you'll have to trust your arm's word because I have not really studied <laughs> the complexes and respiration cellular respiration for a very long time so yeah i uh, believe you are <laughs> um uh so the the next thing that that i think is important that we say at the beginning of this is how important this oxfos is um as a as a um, mitochondrial function right like everybody has it like not only mitochondria are in all eukaryotes, but also all mitochondria in the eukaryotes, they have all of these complexes. Um, Except there are a few weirdos who have lost it, right? So there's a couple things. Um, most of them are unicellular. Most of them are anaerobic as well, um, sometimes parasitic as well. And But generally everybody has it except for a few things yeah. and one of the few things that has lost um oxfos or at least lost some of the complexes is yeast actually baker's yeast i think yeah yeah baker's yeast doesn't have complex one um and overall when when there is, uh, is such a weirdo that lost it um they um they lose often only a few complexes so like the, the main machinery is there but maybe complex one or sometimes com complex three or four um they can be they can go missing and, and then uh, they need to have like alternative systems so sort of bypasses or extra things to to do to make up for those those processes they've kind of lost but what we're sure about um 
at the beginning of this story is that there are no multicellular organisms that have a damaged or lost Oxford system. I just want to note that like <coughs> Yoram and I are going off a slideshow that we made yesterday and at this point Yoram has written the word afork. <laughs> as far as we that? knew. Uh-huh, or as, a fork. As, usually a fork. I would have wrote like F-A-A-I-K as far as I know. But I wanted Children. to say... Please write in and tell me if a fork is actually a thing it's or not. if it's not as cool as he thinks he is. I made it up. Like, whenever there's like slang that I don't know, I just, I'm like, oh, I've, I've just come out of touch with the internet and what's happening these days. But, all right. I know, I don't think anybody uses it and I don't think anybody should use it. I just used it here because I ran out of space and I wanted to say, like, scientific consensus was that there's no multicellular organism that lost um, Oxford. Okay, that's a good consensus. Good starting point. Um, And then we also want to talk briefly about mitochondrial genomes because that's slightly important here. Not hugely important, but slightly important. Um, As you all know, it's not just the nucleus of the cell that has a genome, but mitochondria and also chloroplasts, if we're talking about green things, have their own genomes. And this is basically because mitochondria and chloroplasts both originally were their own organisms which got taken up by a host cell and then over time became not an organism but an organelle. And if you want to know more about that, go to the blog because we don't have time to explain it now. Um, (laughs) But anyway, uh, the mitochondria has its own genome, but there's actually a lot of size variation as far as base pairs um, for how big that genome can be. Um, And in plants in particular, it can go from something that's like, 100 kilobases, so 100,000 base pairs um, in one of the moss species. It's called Buxbaumia aphil, um, to up to 11.3 megabases uh, in another species. So megabase means, what, how many thousands? Uh, uh, isn't it billions? Thousand, Something like that. So, um, so not billion thousands, but billions, so a million thousand. It's not a million thousand. No, like it's... No, kilo, kilo is thousand and then mega, no, mega is the million, giga is billion, yeah. So I think million and billion are also used in different ways in different countries, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. but I try million, to but to do it uh, the English way. Um, anyway, despite the different sizes of the mitochondrial genome, the actual genes that are in that genome are quite similar. And unlike the really awesome plastid genome that has like 100 or 120 genes, <laughs> there's usually only about like 20, maybe 40 max um, protein coding genes which are found in the mitochondria. And most of these genes are really encoding these complexes which are involved in oxidative phosphorylation that Yoram already talked about. So complex one to four um, and the ATP synthase. Uh, not all of the, the protein subunits involved in those complexes are encoded in the mitochondria. Some of them come also from the nucleus, um, but that is what's in the mitochondrial genome. And there's also a few other things, so um, like uh, some ribosomal proteins, some maturations, some um, tRNAs, a few other extra yeah. things. And just like from these 40... Uh, 40 or so genes that are in the mitochondrial genome, nine of them are just for complex one. So a quarter of all the genes in the mitochondrial genome just goes into complex one. And then to these nine genes from the mitochondria, there's more than 40 from the nucleus that uh, that get then imported and added to this complex because it's so big. Um, Just to get like a feel of what that means if you have 40 genes in there. Yeah. Um, 
And okay, I said already that one of the very small mitochondrial genomes is about 100 um, kilobases, but actually the smallest that we know so far belongs to the mistletoe family. So um, this is actually the Malaysian mistletoe. It's not our European mistletoe that we're going to talk about today, um, but it's a related species. So same genus is Viscum. And then this one is called Scuruloidium, Viscum Scuruloidium. Mm-hmm. And that guy only has 66 kilobase um, mitochondrial genome, so a massively reduced yeah. mitogenome, the smallest land plant mitogenome to date. Um, yeah. And previous studies have found that that Malaysian mistletoe seems to have lost these nine genes, which encode the complex one proteins that Yaron was just talking about. It's also lost a couple of other things, but specifically it's lost the complex one genes. And the same is true for the European mistletoe that was also recently or fairly recently sequenced. Um, it's bigger. It's like 10 times bigger approximately than the Malaysian mistletoe. Um, but uh, it also has this gene loss. Um, uh, so especially the, the genes for complex one that are not found in the, in the mistletoe genome. And now the question is, where did they go? Um, there is, they could have moved to the nucleus, um, but it's really hard to prove that because if they're truly absent like proving the absence of something is something that's really hard like if you find traces of it somewhere you can be sure that it's there but if you don't find the traces it might just mean that you can't look closely enough and i think um like in in the mistletoe especially the the mitochondrial genome was one of the first it was like uh, sequenced and recorded in there because the other genomes are like harder to assemble um like often it's the organelles that get first sequenced and then it's uh, the nucleus that gets sequenced. Yeah, mostly just because they're quite small, so that helps with the sequencing. Yeah, and so we can't just uh, look into the nuclear genome now and look for these genes because there is no mistletoe nuclear genome as far as I know. But as Yoram said, it is possible that they have just, they're not lost, they have just gone to the nucleus because it's not an uncommon thing that over evolutionary time genes from both the chloroplast genome or the plastid genome and the mitogenome make their way um, to the nucleus, which gives the nucleus a bit more control over its organelles. So this is something that has happened for both of these organelles over time. So maybe there's just been a recent event where in the mistletoe for some reason, those um, complex one genes have buggered off to the nucleus. Yeah, which um, opens the big question of both papers now. So what happened to complex one? Um, There are essentially two options. Um, So all of the genes for complex one moved from the mitochondria to the nucleus. Which has never been seen before. Or um, the multicellular mistletoe has no complex one. Which is completely unheard of in a multicellular organism. (laughs) So which one will it be? (laughs) (laughs) Did you like how I did that? I'm so happy about that. (laughs) (laughs) Very, Very happy about that. Um, good that we have a script that we're reading off here. Every <laughs> single word is written down before. <laughs> That's why all it took us four weeks to, to come and back. And the us and the awkwardness is all written down. And especially my cuffs. Um, okay, so now we're going to talk about the results of the papers, but we're going to kind of mix and match a little bit between what was shown in my paper and what was shown in Yoram's paper. Yeah, so maybe so, let's start with what did they sample? Mitochondria. Yes. Mistletoe. <laughs> Um, they took my in my paper. They took mistletoe samples from both the UK and Germany, which is very fitting for this episode. Now that you're in Germany and I'm in the UK, yeah. 
And I can make any situation about me. <laughs> that's that, that's very good. I actually remember when Etienne came back with the samples that he that he sampled in in Germany, um, and in on my paper from the from the group uh, um, from the Brown Lab, I think um, uh, they sampled mistletoe from Hanover because that's where they're based. Um, um, which is already like the first little like trivia bit here is why did they actually have to go and sample it? Um, we can't grow it in the lab yet. Mistletoe is a, a hemi-parasitic plant, so it grows on trees and it needs the trees to, um, to provide nutrients or at least a favorable environment. Um, we don't really know what exactly it gets from the trees. Um, and so they had to actually go outside and um, sample it climb in the trees, cut down some mistletoe and bring it back to the lab. Yeah. Um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, okay, so the basic method that is used for this paper at the very start is you have to be able to get the mitochondria out of the mistletoe because both of the papers really wanted to know what was inside the mitochondria, so getting it out was quite important. Um, so there was a mitochondria extraction protocol involved, which was quite tricky, I think, because... As is often the case, we have all these protocols for standard species like Arabidopsis, but when you move to something that's non-standard, you have to optimize, you have to do a lot of work to try to deal with all of the weirdness of that new plant sample. Yeah, and I think mistletoe was um, a specifically hard guy there because it had made so many like secondary metabolites, it made it very sticky. So one of the first things you do in a mito prep um, is you grind up the samples and usually with Arabidopsis, like it takes some arm muscles, but it's straightforward. You grind up in mortar and pestle um, and then you get like a, a slush and then you can you do some filtering and centrifugation and you get in the end you get your mitochondria. Um, but with mistletoe, it was much harder than that. So I think both groups ended up like developing their own new protocol to actually get that done. Mm. I've actually realized that I've missed something. <laughs> Without the extraction and the grinding, both groups also had a look at how the mitochondria or looked at the samples under electron microscope to really look at how the physical structure of the mitochondria was different from what they'd previously seen in other species. And I think both of them basically got the same result, right? Yeah, um, so they looked at another electron uh, microscope um, and they saw that the, the mitochondria, they were round. Um, usually they have, like, sometimes they're roundish, um, sometimes they have this, like, um, bean-shaped structure that you often see in illustrations. Um, but to be honest, like, most of the time when I, I saw mitochondria somewhere on an Im uh, image, they were round. Um, but it could just be from the preparation. Um, but the interesting thing was that they had very weak cristae, which is the the membrane protrusions that you find inside the mitochondria, where the actual all of the magic happens, like all of the enzymes sit in these these membranes, and so they seem to have a reduced membrane structure, mm. which might suggest that there's less room for these membrane proteins to sit. Yeah. Okay, what's what's um, result number two? What are we on to next? Um, so in now we're extracting mitos. Yeah, so now now the mitos are there. There's uh, clean preparations of them, and after looking at them on an electron microscope, the next thing to do, actually, I, rather the first thing in most labs that I see, um, is um, to just run them on a gel, um, and uh, not on just any protein gel, but on a blue native gel. 
And so running them on a gel is just a way of saying you want to separate different proteins that are there based on their size. And then using their size, you can kind of guess what proteins they are because we know the, the size of different proteins or different protein complexes in this case. Yeah. So a gel is usually like a, a filter and then you end up lining up all of the proteins from smallest to biggest uh, in a row. And then you can stain them and then you can see where you have your protein. Um, and when people talk about protein gels, most of the time they're doing STS page, which is where you first extract the proteins and you basically separate everything into individual protein compounds by using a lot of detergent. And then you do this weight separation and then often you do a Western blot under that. So you use an antibody to look for where um, your protein is, something specific you get a band. Yeah. Um, but in this case, they didn't want to separate all of those complexes into the individual proteins. They wanted to look at the complexes themselves. And that's when a blue native page is the best tool. Um, so the page stands for polyacrylamide gel electrophoresis. So this is the part that's the, uh, that's identical to the SDS page. Um, but blue native um, means that the thing happens under native conditions. So the complexes don't fall apart. Um, they stay intact. And then you can separate all of these complexes. So these multitudes of small proteins that stick together um, by size. So you have these individual groups sort of uh, of these, these complexes. And then you separate those by size. And then by staining and then also by Western blotting or other methods, you can figure out which complex is uh, present or absent or in which amounts and all of this. Um, so so when you take Arabidopsis mitochondria, which have been isolated and purified, and then you separate um, those proteins on this blue native page and do some, some Kumasi staining, some staining for where the proteins are, you can see really clearly different sized bands and these different sized bands represent these main complexes. So complex one, two, three, four, ATP synthase. Yeah. Um, and when they did this here, like in both groups, um, the first thing that they saw that the, the characteristic band for complex one was just not there. In the mistletoe. In the mistletoe, yeah, in the mistletoe. So um, complex one is the biggest of these complexes, so it sits at the very top in this in this gel. Um, it has a very distinct big band, and um, so it's really like striking when it's not there. They found that complex two was there, but that complex three and four were kind of there, but in a lot slower amounts. So really complex one was the only one that was missing, but there seemed to also be altered amounts of some of the other um, major complexes involved in the Oxfos. Yeah. Uh, what they saw in the in the group uh, from the paper that I'm presenting, um, they they saw the same that complex one was missing, and they saw the complexes two, three, and four. But they also saw super complexes of three and four. So if you imagine you have like already the the uh, arrangement of many proteins together in a complex, in complex three and in complex four individually, now these two big things stick together and form an even bigger complex, which is then a super complex. Um, so they could see this on the gel. Um, uh, these these uh, very big, uh, these very large arrangements of, of protein there. And whenever you see these like very big um, blobs of these, these um, complexes, you want to know what is in these bands. <clears throat> so what you do then, um, you do a two-dimensional uh, gel, um, and then you just cut out a lane of your blue native gel, and then you turn it on the side and you run this again um, on a, a regular STS gel. And that now breaks apart the complexes and now you can look in uh, inside the complexes and see what's in there. And doing this, um, they used some Arabidopsis um, 2D gels as reference maps to map out where the individual proteins are. And it's just uh, reconfirmed that they could find two, three, and four 
uh, from the complexes, but I couldn't find any trace of, of uh, proteins that ran uh, where complex one subunits would run. So I want to mention that my group got a very similar result, but they didn't do exactly the same thing. So they didn't do this two-dimensional gel. Instead, they took their long ladder of protein complexes of different sizes, and they made tons and tons of slices. They just like sliced it into tiny little amounts, each um, band representing a um, small molecular weight kind of fraction. And then they did proteomics on that. So this is called complexome analysis, and it basically cuts out the separation process. The problem is you don't get as high resolution as with the 2D, but it's um, an alternative way of doing kind of a similar, getting to a similar result. And they did see the same sort of thing. So they, they couldn't really find complex one anywhere, which is important because they were comparing their species, which is not very well characterized, the mistletoe, with Arabidopsis, and they couldn't see this complex one band that was in Arabidopsis. But it could be that the complex one band in um, the mistletoe was just in a different place. It didn't have the same size, or maybe it was forming super complexes like Yoram already suggested. So they had to do kind of this extra confirmation to show that there wasn't any of the proteins belonging to co complex one in different places on the gel. Yeah, and um, uh, just to, um, I don't know what word is that I'm <laughs> looking for, but um, my group also did this complexome analysis. Um, on top of that, um, pretty much uh, the, the same way. Um, and they could also reconfirm what they saw before, but they could also still not find any trace of complex one. Um, so yeah, so that leaves us at the conclusion, at least for my paper. This is now the experiments that they did. Um, I have a couple more experiments showing kind of similar things. Um, so whoop, 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 whoop. they also did some um, assays, some kind of activity assays on these bands that they had in the gel just to kind of confirm that the bands they saw were doing um, were the right bands because um, the complexes can actually have activity even when they're trapped inside the gel. So you can use different methods to actually make mm. a response. So maybe you get a color change or you get some, some sort of signal by adding certain chemicals. And they did that to just confirm the presence of the different complexes. Um, and one final thing is they also did some feeding assays with some radio labeled um, glucose. Mm -hmm. And this was to kind of to see if there was a change in the respiratory flux. So there was kind of changes in the way that glucose was going to the system. And I won't go into that experiment. You can look in the paper. But it basically um, suggested that there was a change in the coupling of the Oxfos pathway in um, mistletoe, which suggested that mistletoe was largely using an alternative pathway, which involved breakdown of glucose, so um, glycolysis, instead of... Um, the normal kind of pathway of Oxfos that you're seeing in Arabidopsis. Yeah. Uh, I think Yarm just turned his mic off to cough. Yeah, 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 I, I did. Um, <laughs> so I was... Beautiful. Um, just a meaningless um, um, excuse. Um, so, yeah. Um, so, taken together, what did these two papers find? Um, what what happened to complex one? Um, what 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 is it of these two options? Um, and I guess it's pretty clear from from what we've seen that it's the the second option that there is no complex one in these um, mitochondria, even though these are multicellular organisms which are before that believed to not be able to survive without functional Oxfos system. Mm. Um, so. so 
Yeah, sorry, the additional um, suggestion is that instead of having that oxfos system, the energy is produced by a very high rate of glycolysis um, and that they basically need to have the substrates for that, which being a parasite probably means they're stealing it from their tree hosts. Um, and there are some studies previously which suggest that up to 80% of the carbon that this hemiparasite uh, mistletoe can have can be stolen from the host. So it looks like it's relying pretty heavily on somebody else to do its work. Yeah. And uh, the, some of the conclusions that come from, from my uh, paper are that um, the super complexes of three and four, of complex three and complex four um, that look uh, r rather puzzling um, in in this context because in Arabidopsis you don't see them they are not very unusual uh, for example um, you find them in potato um, in the tubers of the potato um, you you can find these super complexes in the mitochondria and then also humans do it uh, which to me just shows that humans are essentially potatoes. <laughs> And not all humans, just Germans. Um, oh my gosh. <laughs> I can say that because I'm German. I can be offensive. <laughs> uh, you can't say that to my people. I can't say that to your lovely people. Um, yeah, and this also might explain the slow growth um, of um, mistletoe. Like I looked uh, back then when Etienne brought this this uh, this project uh, into the office and we were discussing it, I looked at the reproduction cycle of mistletoe and just the creation of the first leaf um, after germination takes a full year. Um, yeah. yeah, so it grows very, very slowly. Um, so whenever you see these balls of mistletoe hanging in the trees, they're often, they must be like uh, several years old or sometimes tens of years old to have like this much, this much biomass accumulated because they're very, very slow growing. And the reason for it might be that they're not very efficient at making their own ATP and therefore, um, um, yeah, they don't, they can't make sucrose and then sucrose is usually used um, to like be put into growth. Um, at least that's a hypothesis in this paper. <clears throat> uh, I think that's mostly it for the conclusions, yeah? Yeah, and the, the one last callback there to this, these cristae, these membrane structures, um, they're so reduced. Uh, in the paper, they also discussed that um, this might be caused by this reduction in the a, in a membrane uh, complexes because these membrane complexes shape the membranes. So if they're missing, there's nothing that can shape these membranes into these, like, invaginations of the cristae of the, uh, the mitochondria so this also goes then in line right you, they, they did the very first look in the electron microscope and then once they have all of the proteome data it actually makes sense um, that you see these like uh, uh, visible phenotype in the membranes like personally I, I suspect that they looked under the electron microscope after they did all the other stuff but yeah sure. just because it takes so much longer to prepare the samples <laughs> No, no, not that. Just like, I mean, yeah, it's good supporting evidence. But guys, one of the most important things that my previous, previous supervisor taught me is that the order that you write your paper or your thesis or whatever you're writing right now does not have to be in the same order as you did the experiment. Yeah. So I suspect that they looked at that at the end, but I yeah. don't know. Um, but it's a good starting point for the story into the research paper. So mm. that's why they put it in figure one. <laughs> Maybe they did do it first. Who knows? I don't know their life. 
Um, yeah, so this is the conclusions. It's actually really, as we said, an amazing find that there's this multicellular organism, which is basically, it's not doing something that we consider to be practically essential for eukaryotic life. It's just kind of given up on on one part of this, this Oxfos process. It hasn't given up on everything, but it's, it's just lost complex one. Um, so this is really quite an amazing um, species in itself. But what also is amazing about this story to us is the fact that these two papers were published back to back in current opinions at the same time in the same issue, um, coming from two different groups. And how this came about is that the two groups were basically working on the same thing and kind of serendipitously discovered, um, I guess based on the previous research, they had clues to go looking. And um, at a conference, I believe, they realized that they were working on the same thing. And this is actually something that as scientists, we, we really fear a lot. And it's, it's a, a problem in science because you want to be working in an active community where other people are also researching. That's how research moves forward. And also if it's a dead field, you're not gonna get financing that you need for your research. But if you're working in an active research field, there's always the risk that somebody else has been working on the same thing as you. And if they publish before you, you can lose your career you can have that your publication is no longer deemed worthy to be published or at least not an as high um, an impact or as high a, a um, quality, I'm putting that inverted commas, um, of journal. And it can be really disastrous, especially for young scientists. So this is just a really nice example where these two groups found out that they were working on the same thing. And instead of one group deciding to publish before the other group, they discussed it and they came together and decided that they would publish back to back so they would basically wait for each other to both be at the same stage of the publication process and publish at the same time yeah and then also like submit it at the same time so that the editor of the journal um, knows that there's two papers coming in um, that are related to each other and that needs some coordination and some like friendly um yeah a friendly coordination between these two groups um which is really nice to see yeah, and of course, one group was probably done a bit before the other and had to wait for the second group. So, I mean, it's it's also a, a sacrifice and, yeah. yeah, but the reality is this is how science should work because that's not just a win for both of those groups of scientists. It's also a win for science because now we have two independent studies which use different methodology in many cases, which were working under different lab environments, which had slightly different protocols, for example, for isolating the mitochondria, and they came up with the same results. And one of the the issues that we face now in science is that studies are being done so rapidly with so much pressure to get them out that often they're not reproducible even in the same conditions so this to me represents a really nice ideal of how we would like to see the science community that there's this friendly camaraderie or at least like working together um to improve the quality of science like this is yeah. this is a really nice example yeah yeah absolutely um and what i like, like now is that they they also they share the recognition so there has been there have been some some write-ups about this story like some articles published and so on and it's always both papers that are mentioned so it's not one of them mm -hmm. that can now take all of the fame of it and like give all of the interviews and is the one that's recognized as the main f main finder of these these results no both of them um, have been given uh, giving interviews have uh, have been um, 
cited and uh, in all of these articles like both papers are linked in in the article which is uh, which i really respect i think that's a really good way of doing uh, research in such a competitive environment that we have today yeah um now christmas music christmas music okay <laughs> okay, now what's the next segment? Um, ah, the <clears throat> I was curious in the slides. There's there, it says that I should stop reading there, and I was I was hoping that it's now the time that I can find out what's going on there. But I, apparently it's not, so I just have it's to wait. It's actually not that exciting. It's just my fun facts, but I don't really have very many fun facts. Ah, okay, oh. it's even a bigger stop letdown. Stop the music, Yaram. Stop the music. There we go. Ooh, it's synced. <laughs> Oh shit, that's me. Yeah, your favorite plant, Ian. I'm not ready. Um, so I'm cheating this week and going with the Christmas theme, but also being very, very lazy. So if any of you follow also our blog, you might notice that we tend to post things twice a week, three times a week if you include the podcast. Um, but in the last Christmas season, Yoram made the unilateral decision that apparently I wasn't busy enough with the move and with the <laughs> new job and trying to set up bank accounts and all of that bullshit. But we would also post every single day as a kind of Christmas advent. I um, don't know so what I was thinking. I was like, oh, how I hard can it be? I also don't know what you were thinking, but I was like... How hard can uh, it be? And now I'm just like, oh, every single day there has to be something. And I'm like drawing out of things and sometimes writing stuff. I'm so happy that you write so much and... Still, um, I'm just we're like, now up to why? day 11 um, why? and we're not quite dead yet and <laughs> I think like I have at least 10 more ideas left for the the remainder Christmas period I hope Yoram you have a couple because that only gets us to day 20 I, I have 10 but in binary wait does Advent like does the Advent season finish on the 25th or on the 30th it's on the 25th right 24th 24th in Germany like in Germany all of the Advent calendars have 24 doors Okay. All right. So we only need like 15 more maximum. Yeah. And then we have some, yeah, (laughs) we can stretch out some things. This is now very internal stuff that you have to listen to. um, But yeah, but we can, we can manage. I'm not even kidding you today. I was just Googling something actually as part of work um, because somebody wrote about a species and I didn't recognize that species. And so I wanted to have a look to see what it visually looked like. And I saw it and I was like, hell yes, it looks like a Christmas bauble. I'm storing that for later. So there is going to be a plants that look like Christmas decorations post coming in your very near future, (laughs) which might tell you something about how desperate I am right now. (laughs) Also, apparently Germans really like putting pickles on their tree. So that's going to be the theme of one blog post as well um (laughs) if you do have any plants or any stories that might vaguely be related to plants and are also vaguely related to the holiday period it doesn't have to necessarily be christmas because yoram and i are both blatant heathens please send us in all your ideas and we'd be happy to write something up but yeah save us (laughs) from ourselves (laughs) um anyway my favorite plant So, as I said, I'm cheating and I'm just going to talk about one of the plants that I already mentioned on the blog. You can go and read the blog at plantsandpipettes.com. It's from Advent Day 2. And it is the plant Euphorbia pucherima, I want to say. Yoram, do you know what plant that is? 
it's uh, I think for if my Latin is not too rusty from back from school, <laughs> I think it's a poinsettia plant. Well done, Yarm. Um, Yarm was uh, pre-trained to answer that question. Um, so poinsettias <laughs> are these beautiful red plants that you often see on people's tables at Christmas times. They're very decorative. If you live in Germany, you'll probably see them spray painted with gold glitter because apparently that's a thing that German flower shops love to do to their plants. I don't understand why. They need their leaves. They don't want them to be covered with glitter. But anyway, um, <laughs> So just poinsettia, basically what it is, it's a plant that originally comes from Mexico. Um, yeah, and it's been associated with Christmas for a very long time in history, since about the 16th century. There's a story that you can link to that. So apparently once there was a young girl and she was too f um, poor and wasn't able to find the appropriate Christmas gift um, to dedicate to her church in the Christmas period. So instead she gathered some weed plants by the side of the road and then I think an angel was evolved and miraculously those weeds became a poinsettia. Weed as in, in, in like cannabis. Weeds. <laughs> With an S. Yeah. Don't be difficult. <laughs> um, but also obviously there are these bright red and green plants and red and green is always associated with Christmas because green, I don't know, but red is supposed to be the blood of Christ, which is lovely. Green is um, the mucus maybe. No, <laughs> I'm a, I'm a very dirty heathen. I'm sorry. Um, like yeah, I I will burn in eternal hell eventually, but not for not for a few more years. Okay, I think um I'm just gonna leave it there and guide you over to look at the blog um post because we have a few different facts about the poinsettia, but we also have quite a nice post. I would say because I wrote it about um a certain type of caterpillar which likes to eat the poinsettia. Um, which I think is quite cool because poinsettia actually produces latex, which is this kind of milky fluid that you see in some plants when you scratch them. And the latex is there to protect the plant from being eaten by caterpillars. It actually like kind of <laughs> oozes out and gums up their little leg legs and their little mandibles and stuff. So most caterpillar species make the very wise decision not to eat poinsettia because it has this gooey, sticky latex stuff. Um, but this specific species of caterpillar that we're talking about on another blog post, um, I think it's Advent Day 3. It has a special acid spray, not unlike the alien of the horror films. And it also has some little scratchy, massage motions that it gets into to help it eat the um, poinsettia. So go and have a read of that one as well. I think it's quite a cool story that was originally published um, dun dun dun, by Dussard et al, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was fun drawing the caterpillars. Um <laughs> They're very cute as well. Yeah. As cute as a caterpillar can be, but yeah, I mean, they they're good. Have you heard of leaf hoppers? No. You should really so leaf hop I think it's leaf hoppers. Hang on. Put leaf hopper helmet into your um tree tree hoppers. It's not a leaf hopper, it's a tree hopper. Listen to us like how we wow, googling stuff live. Okay, so there's this bug which it's called a tree hopper and it has these weird appendages on its head and there's one of them which actually has like it looks like an old fashioned tap, the kind with like four different knobs coming out of it. So I think if you 
I'm trying um, teaching myself. Okay, put tree hopper helmet helicopter into your Google image search. Everybody, if you're listening to this podcast, if you're in the lab, remove your gloves, get your phone out and type tree hopper helmet helicopter and look at this bug. It is insane. Why? Why? I don't know. It literally looks like it has a helicopter thing on its head, like a little like whoop, 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 whoop. what's it called? The blades? Um, Yeah, a, a, a rotor. Yeah, and I, I'm not sure. I guess it's a d- defense thing. But, I, I mean, I haven't looked into it because it's not a plant and I just didn't want to disrespect the plants by getting too excited by this bug. But it's it's amazing. Yeah, it looks it looks a little bit terrifying. It looks like something that I would run away from screaming. Yeah, like but a little it's also... Person. Like they, they have these appendages, and I guess it's for a defense, but they... To develop these appendages, they used they co-opted the genes that they already had to make wings, and then they kind of reused, like copied and pasted them. We've kind of talked about this before, like altered them a bit to use them to develop these weird little helmet helicopter things. Did you just burn a fun fact on the favorite plant? I mean, it's not like you will look so that like that will reflect poorly on you when we come to the actual segment of the fun stuff. Uh, can we go to the segment about the fun stuff? Oh no, we have another segment still. Yeah, we have a few more segments. Um, do, do, do you have a bias thing? I can look one up while you're talking. <laughs> then I'll talk first about the diversity. <laughs> you um, finding your notes that you prepared well in advance about different biases. Um, so I want to present um, the life of Edith Rebecca Saunders. Um, she was born in 1865, so in the 19th century, in Brighton, in England. Um, England is where you are right now. Um, yes, true. <laughs> and she died. She she died in 1945 in Cambridge, um, and she uh, was a British botanist and plant geneticist um, who was working on um, understanding the trait inheritance in plants. And she worked with flower trait anatomy. Trait inheritance. Trait inheritance. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was described by J.B.S. Haldane as the mother of British plant genetics. Um, so, yeah, just some some f- uh, <coughs> excuse me, some facts about her life. Um, she studied in Newnham College at the women, Women's School of Cambridge from uh, 84 to 88. Uh, she studied natural sciences and then taught uh, botany. Um, and uh, she held that position for a long time. And during that position, she uh, worked on, she, she started working on understanding the structure and function of specialized secretory cells in the septal glands of the plants of the genus Knipophia. Um, and then she worked together with William Bateson on plant inheritance. And then uh, during a five-year period from 1897 to 1902, they published a series of papers on the inheritance of dominant and recessive traits in in this plant species, uh, Biscutella levigata. Um, mm-hmm. And then she turned her attention to um, to the garden plant, Matiola and Cana, and uh, the inheritance patterns there um, that she continued to study then until uh, 1945. Um, yeah, and she was just like one of the very first uh, women in, in botany and genetics in um, in England um, that was uh, renowned and um, yeah, uh, authoring a lot of papers. Um, she was awarded some some. Uh, she was president of the botanical section of the British Association for the Advancement of Science and of the uh, Genetic Genetical Society. 
Um, so yeah, that's uh, that's her. I don't have. Can you a, say her name again? Edith Rebecca Saunders. Edith Saunders. Hmm. Yeah. And what's her link to Christmas? Um, she was born in October 14th, with it's only like a couple of months and days away <laughs> from Christmas. Um, <laughs> Be, like, <clears throat> excuse me. <laughs> Literally yesterday, I sent Yarm a message and was like, "Please find a scientist who is somehow related to Christmas." That yeah, I all. couldn't. Um, ha, ha, I mean, how do you search for that? I would not know at all. I'm just doing plant scientist related to Christmas. Let's see what comes up. I'm also trying to look for a bias now that's associated with Christmas, but I'm not finding that <laughs> either. Uh, I I have my bias if that helps, but it's a terrible one. Yeah. Right. Did you, do we have a bias theme song? We don't have a, a jingle for that yet. I didn't have like a chance yet to make one. All right, Yaron, play the bells. And <laughs> uh, enough bells. Anytime. Enough bells. Enough bells. Okay. Stop the bells. They're fading out. Are they? Oh, beautiful. It was very artistic. Um, so I obviously did not do my homework this week. I completely forgot that I was supposed to be looking up a bias. So I just went to the Wikipedia page, list of cognitive biases um, right now, which I can recommend you all go to because it's a very comprehensive list. Um, and I chose the one which reflects my own bias to go towards anything which is to do with feminism. And I picked the bias which falls under the decision-making belief and behavioral biases category, which is called the women are wonderful effect. <laughs> okay. And the women are wonderful effect was described by Alice Eagley and Antonio Mladenic back in the early 90s, so 1994, when they did a study and they found that both male and female participants tend to assign positive traits to women. Okay. Not only that, female participants are far more likely to be biased in thinking that females are more wonderful I mean, than men. That's just correct, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, 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 I mean, have you met men? <laughs> so there's. <laughs> yeah, maybe the women in the room had also just <laughs> met men. <laughs> and maybe that's the problem. <laughs> they were under the impression of men, and that's a bad impression. Um, if you're my father, please stop listening now because you already think that I hate men too much. Um, please just stop. No, no, it's stop it's listening. it's this is me saying it. Like I hate it's men. I'm saying it. Um, <laughs> I don't hate men, guys. Um, so it's basically just the result of their research suggests that people associate more positive attributes, but then they kind of thought about why this might be the case and it kind of comes back to this idea that women are nurturing so I'm not really certain based on my very strong lack of homework <laughs> doing what um what actual attributes they were saying were positive so I'm not sure if they were just using words like caring or friendly um I don't know. I would have to look into it more. But this is actually something which follows as a negative. So here they say women is wonderful is actually positive sexism towards women. So it's a situation where women get the advantage of the sexism, yeah. which is generally quite uncommon um, for women versus men. Um, 
is that where child rearing is is involved and then men always get kind of the the bad stick i would say yeah um no but this reminds me of another uh, I, I guess a related thing is like in languages where you have genders assigned to nouns um, like german or many european languages um you associate different traits with the same object depending on what the gender of the pronoun is um i remember that there is um there was a comparison for example between french and german where um people should um uh, ascribe adject uh, adjectives to the word bridge which is brücke in german and pont in french and in french it's male um it's le pont and in german it's die brücke it's uh, it's female um, and so German speakers would rather use like female associated words with it like um, it's mm. it's connecting it's supporting um, and so on while <laughs> the French would rather use words like a strong strong uh, uh, <laughs> strong and hard and made Salic. of stone and so <laughs> Um, yeah. So these this this bias is like women are wonderful bias in, in terms of like uh, adjectives and 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 like uh, um, yeah descriptions, like yeah also goes down to down to language, <clears throat> and to me yeah, this, and this is, is actually something which has been shown a lot in um, interview situations that often when people. Um, write down reviews of how different interview candidates uh, responded they tend to describe the women with words which are traditionally seen to be more feminine so oh she seemed like she was a really good player she seemed like she would be really supportive of the people in her group these kind of words whereas they tend to use other words to describe men um so he was like had a go-getter attitude he was like very um ambitious um things like that and this is actually something that now gender studies have to correct for language usage to make sure there's not bias in interviewing so even if you um don't say what the gender of the person is if you use all of these female adjectives or these traditionally female seen adjectives i'm using a little inverted quote comma things that you can't see on the podcast but if you use these adjectives you actually end up disadvantaging the candidate because people often don't see those adjectives as associated with particularly leadership roles um, just one thing, Tegan. Uh, every time you touch that power cable, every time you touch that power cable, I hear a, a hum. <laughs> oh my god! I was wondering what was making the hum. <laughs> We're constantly playing. That's amazing. <laughs> Shit! I have. It's oh fine. It's it's fine. So I can do a little bit of filtering and 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 stuff. And I just realized my that my microphone, phone, was and my um my computer are now on like ten percent battery because I have specifically not had either of them plugged in the whole time. But I didn't realize it just touching the cord. That's so how. Uh, I don't know electronics. Like I'm a biologist, not an um, electronic engineer. <laughs> okay. Um, Sorry, guys. Next time I'll do my homework. <laughs> it's it's fine. It's good. And also not touch the cord. Um, Apparently, women are wonderful. That's a take-home message, I would say. Yeah, but I would ag I would agree with that. Um, yeah, but it's a uh, yeah no it, it it goes too far. I just recently like there was this this Finnish uh, government that was uh, recently constituted, um, and uh, out of the three or four parties that formed a coalition, all of them are headed by young women. And the head of state is now a young woman in her 30s, a young woman in her 30s. 
Um, and so now all of the newspapers that don't know what to write about this, they use like all of these like, oh, like the prettiest government in Europe and lots of shit like this, um, which just goes to show that like some people are just incapable of use of like ascribing competence to women that is outside of physical properties, like outside of, of pre presenting as like beautiful beings or as like caring mothers or um, and, and stuff like that. Although, like, I'm, I'm sure, like, judging from the positions that these women have, they're all very capable politicians. But what you read in newspapers now is like, oh, how pretty these Finnish ladies are that are running the country now. Um, at least in some of the German burn newspapers. Everything. Yeah. Is that correct? Shall we burn everything? Yes, yes. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm in favor. Um, how does it go in your country now? In like, in the, in the parliament, do they have to say like I or some, some weird sound when they're in favor? I've just seen like some parliamentary debates for Brexit. It was just like it's oh, like cricket. Country. I thought you were talking about Australia. No, no, your country is now the UK. <laughs> uh, okay, that's I don't know if that's a win for me. I mean, oh, <laughs> the fun fact about Australia is that there was an article I saw which said that Australia just got downvoted as far as how um, democratically free we are as a country. So we are now less democratically free than we used to be because our government has taken to raiding media outlets, punishing whistleblowers with prison sentences, um, limiting freedom of the press, um, lit litigating against them and things like that. So Lovely. well done, Australia. You suck a little bit more than I when I left you. <laughs> Let's move on. Move on. Oh, wait. Uh, first, the important <clears throat> thing. Another less important thing. This is where the fun So apparently I already blew my fun fact. <laughs> I have like one more and then I have a cat thing, but I blew that leaf hopper thing. Um ah yeah, yeah. Um, um I I looked up um I have to look in my list where it is. Ah yeah, here. Uh, I have a fun fact that's called Phytophthora, um the mole that stole Phytophthora? Maybe Phytophthora. The mole that stole Christmas. Um, in in Connecticut, there have been a bunch of scientists. Um, wait, wait, wait! Why are you blowing this on a fun fact? If we have like fourteen more days of Advent, we can also use this on Advent. You wanted Christmas-based fun facts. Damn it! <laughs> <laughs> All right, off you go. So the story is pretty short. Um, they uh, found a new type of fungus. Are you playing with the core, Tegan? Shit! Shit! <laughs> Put it down. It makes it hum. <laughs> it's like an ancient power lies in lives in between. I was just, I'm just gonna play with this crinkly plastic instead. Is that better? God. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I mean, I, I I know your pain. Like, I also need to fiddle with something the entire time. Um, so scientists in Connecticut, back to the fun fact, um, they have found a new species of, of Phytophthora um, in Christmas trees. They were growing um, Christmas trees for, their, uh, for, for the tree nursery and they were um, 
looking for resistant trees um, or for different like growth conditions and then when they looked in the conditions that didn't work they tried to figure out why they didn't work why the, the trees died and then they sampled the water and then in the water they found this like mold this fungus um, that's an uncharacterized uh, species uh, so far to, uh, belonging to the Ganes of Phytophthora um, and they say it, it um, potentially it could be very damaging and very bad um, so good that they found it um, but yeah um, so so far there's no no news yet about if, like if it occurs in the wild or anything like that um, so yeah that's the one f uh, thing I found uh, about Christmas, Christmas <laughs> yeah I think I, I literally went to like Google News and put in like plant and Christmas and then look through the news um, things that came up there which most of it was just poinsettia um, how-tos and like this you didn't know these 10 facts about poinsettia dude <laughs> Tegan what is your next fun fact um, mine is also related to Christmas Yoram what uh -huh. do you eat for Christmas dinner Christmas dinner hmm I'd like to have some of that what do you eat for Christmas dinner um, this year uh, I, I actually don't know yet. It's, I will be at my parents' place and they'll be in charge of making Christmas Did you dinner. say salmon? Well, that's a coincidence because <laughs> this fact is about salmon. <laughs> Who eats salmon for Christmas? Who's rich like that? Australians. We eat fish all the time because it's too hot to eat anything else. <laughs> it's like 45 <laughs> degrees at Christmas and we're like, please, can we just swim in the pool and like eat seafood salad? You're not having like turkey and gravy and potato mash. and We do also have that sometimes. But, in um, summer. I think, yeah, it depends. Like some people are more traditional and still do the hot roast thing. But I think my family is like veering towards the things that were hot and roasted, but then have cooled down a lot before you eat them. So <laughs> yeah, like ham and stuff like that. Um, this is something that got the Ig Nobel Prize in Neuroscience a while back. It's actually an old paper. Um, and again, paper should be in the inverted commas. It's an old story that came out in 2012. Um, it's on Psycurious, so you should definitely check it out. We'll again put um, the link in the bio from Psycurious. Um, but my friend just mentioned it in one of these group chats that we had yesterday, and it's super cool. So it's a story about fun science and how it can be used as a learning lesson which sounds really horrible but it's actually great um the idea is that it's looking at these studies using mri um magnetic resonance imaging mm -hmm. i guess um particularly a type called fmri which is used quite commonly in studies to look at brain activity changes in response to different stimuli so you put something under the mri probably a person and then you stimulate them in some way and you see changes in like oxygenation or like blood flow or something like this and this is taken to be like response and all oh, that person you know has has feelings about this issue yeah. And it's something that's used in the field, but it's also really commonly picked up by the media um, and, and um, you know, common popular science blogs. So you so get these fancy pictures, right, from the brain with, like, areas highlight lighting up. Um, and exactly. you say, like, this and is where this lit up. sadness yeah, exactly. lives in your brain. Yeah, look, look, Yoram is clearly a sociopath because when we showed him these dead kittens, his brain... <laughs> I don't know, his right temporal load lit up like a Christmas tree, which is, again, a Christmas tree link. Well done, Tegan. Um, I feel like you're not encouraging me enough today. 
No, absolutely. Um, biggest fan. <laughs> well done, Tim. Well done. Um, so usually before you actually do the experiments on the people, you have to kind of set up the machine, get it running, and put something in there that's the negative control. And apparently it's most common to just put a balloon in there, which is kind of filled with some oil or something to give it a bit of density, just to like set up the machine and, and take some, some first shots to kind of calibrate everything. This group who was doing this experiment didn't want to use a balloon. They wanted to get something which had a little bit of a better contrast. So they got on their bicycles, went down to the shop. And I'm really sorry, I'm now going to have to plug the cord of my Mac in or it's going to go to sleep. We're going to get some humming again. Just touch the Mac then. Touch the Mac? Yeah, you're right, it works. Um, so they first went down to the shops and they bought a pumpkin. And they put that in the MRI machine. Uh, but they didn't like it. It didn't have good enough con contests. So then PhD student number two gets on their bicycle. I'm imagining it's one of those like small tricycles with a little flag and they pedal down to the corner shop. And this time instead of a pumpkin, they think hmm, animal, vegetable, mineral, let's go with an animal. And they pick up a game hen, I guess a Cornish game hen. So like a small dead chicken-like thing that's been plucked and um, they put that in the MRI. But it still doesn't have very good contrast. I don't know. It's a skinny bird. It doesn't have enough fat content, something like that. This begins so to sound like one of these jokes where you always go like three things. And it's just like, and then they uh. went to. <laughs> and then they went to the shop again. PhD student number three went to the shop and they picked up a salmon um, because the chicken did not have good contrast. Um, and basically what they did is just put this salmon under the machine and I'm not sure if they showed it the stimuli, but they took a lot of the images which are usually used in studies like this. Um, and all they wanted to show is that when you then do all of the different comparisons, so basically you're looking for differences between a control without the stimulus and a situation with the stimulus. But because you're using a very complex system, you have lots of different tests you're doing. So there's this problem of multiple um, testing. So which is basically the idea that the more tests for significance you get, the higher chance you are to just find significance by accident, even if there is no significance. So it's... Um, yeah. Yeah. So if you um, have an, an error quota like of 5%, that means like one in 20 is showing a positive signal, even though it's negative. And if you run like 40 or more tests, then you just increase the chance of like one of this one in 20 um, hitting um, and to be to be a positive result, although it's a negative measurement, like although it should be negative. Something something like that. You know, we're microbiologists or, um, yeah, we don't know statistics. If you're a statistician, please just shout at us. Um, we will ignore you anyway and continue to do bad statistics because that's how it works <laughs> in our field. <laughs> True story, my friend actually, my friend went to a statistics um, course. She was also a plant biologist. She went to a statistics course during her PhD because she wanted to learn how to do the statistics properly. And basically she, what she learned was if you do the statistics correctly, nobody else in your field will understand what you're doing because everybody in your field has just been doing wrong statistics for years and has accepted that this is how statistics are done. So if you want to get published, you probably should just do the bad statistics. Although from my statistics class, I remember that there was a, a thing that they said that when you try to calculate your t-test, like the, to figure out significance, there's like different algorithms. They're called like ANOVA and Pearson's t-test and whatever. Um, and I say like, 
yeah, um, when we asked like, yeah, which one of these should we take? And I was like, yeah, the one that gives you the best results. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so yeah. much for the hard science of, um, of statistics, at least in so this like, uni class. <laughs> So the best result for the salmon was that they found that if they didn't do this different correction where you take into account the fact that you're doing multiple correct uh, testing and then you try to remove those false positives, then as it turned out, their salmon was highly responsive to different stimuli. So basically <laughs> they could show that the dead salmon in the MRI machine, his brain was lighting up with a whole lot of activity in a whole lot of different situations. Um, and basically the group, I think they originally were not going to do anything with this. It was just kind of a joke. But then somebody analyzed the data, um, did this um, corrections thing and used it as an example and took it as a poster to a conference. And it then got published in what's like a joke journal, which is called the Journal of Serendipitous and Unexpected Results. And it now works as a nice example of why you really, really, really should do um, the multiple testing correction. But what I want to say to you is I have explained this very poorly over the last like way too long a period of time. You need to go and read the article because it's really funny. It's really nicely written. Um, Curious is obviously a genius um, and it has a lot of terrible puns in it. So they talk about the poster making a splash, um, things like that. So just like go and read the article yourself, guys. Yeah. Um, yeah, I remember that when it got the Ig Nobel Prize. Um, I remember hearing about that paper. Um, it's it's a, a cool thing. Um, uh, and the point of this is not that fMRI is a bullshit technique. It just means that you have to care, be careful about the controls and the, the things that you do. Um, you can't just use the met method and then immediately jump to conclusions. You have to have all of these like careful ev uh, statistical ev evaluations yeah, in, in between, like and then the method works well. Um, so I think the last time I read about this, this was like stressed very much in there that you can't just dismiss, dismiss now all fMRI techniques or papers based on this method um, because you say, oh yeah, it's the one where they could show anything in a salmon. No, like the method is fine. The statistics just have to be done right. And often they yeah. were not, but now they are. It's, it's always the thing of like, the technique is only as good as the person who uses the technique and you've got to do, yeah, use the right methods in the end, use the right statistical analysis, even <clears throat> I just said, honestly. Mm. <laughs> Oh, statistics. Yeah, statistics are fun. Have you got a nice fact? Um, yes, <laughs> I have a nice fact. I'm sorry, I, on the side here, I tried to set up a light so that I'm not that much in the shadow and I actually wanted to take a picture. Um, uh, but I have something where we need this. CRISPR news. Oh, nice. Um, I watched the movie. Um, it's called Human Nature. It's from director Adam Bold. Um, and this movie uh, it talks about CRISPR. Um, it's from the character. I don't know if you've seen like the movie Particle Fever, which was this documentary about uh, CERN and um, the particle accelerator and like the theoretical and the applied physicists that are working there. Um, that was very well done and very well received, got like prizes and stuff. Um, and this film, Human Nature, is from a, a similar type of documentary right like it has lots of interviews with different um, researchers that were that were working in all stages of CRISPR discovery and application and it talks a lot about like the entire ethics of uh, medical application of CRISPR and uh, although plants play only a very small role in that movie 
they are mentioned there's like one example of like hey we could do this and that in crispr uh, with crispr in, in, in plants um, but it talks a lot about the ethics of using crispr in the germline in humans like could should we cure sickle cell anemia should we cure genetic diseases with crispr because now we can technically um or is that something that we shouldn't mess with because then like if we start curing diseases will we start also reducing cancer risks and stuff like that and then sorry will the rich people be able to have like very fancy well engineered babies and uh, not so rich people will not have access to that all of these questions um they're not really answered in this movie they they bring different um like sides a uh, point of view to this this whole discussion and i quite like this that they didn't try to come up with a def definitive answer in the end like they had somebody from a company that does like pre-implantation diagnostics who was like really in favor of doing all of these checkups and they had other people that were much more careful about this and they had like a little boy who had sickle cell anemia and um he obviously was in favor of um, using like a genetic cure for for that. So I can just recommend this movie. It's very well done. It explains CRISPR very well. Like the, the has beautiful animations and so on. And you leave um, the the theater just like not really having more answers, just being more aware of the complexity of the issue. Like that you are aware that you can't have simple answers there mm. and m maybe you will like adjust your own position a little bit in in one direction or the other after the movie um but at least for me i, I afterwards I, I didn't feel like uh, suddenly it is clear what we should do in this like medical application of crispr um uh, which i found i found quite interesting and i also want to say like all of these ethical questions to me they don't apply to the plant world because it's very different like We've been doing crazy genetic stuff with plants since forever. Stuff that we would not do in humans for good reason. Like we're not breeding humans. We're not crossing humans and selecting them, throwing away 90% that we don't like and then just keeping the 10% that perform best. We're not doing that in humans, but we're doing totally doing that in plants for thousands of years. Um, I think for me, the most ethical question in like the plant breeding world is the question of if you yourself have enough resources, enough food and enough vitamins and things, who the fuck do you think you are that you can define what other people have <laughs> access to? That's the ethical question for me. Like, yeah, but uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but the movie, I can I can recommend that. Like, it's not strictly plant science, but it's um, um, I, I quite liked it. I, I found it very well done. If anybody noticed that Yoram just started like talking a little bit more slowly and like in a disjointed way, it's because he's taking selfies and he's incapable of taking selfies <laughs> while also talking. <laughs> Wait a moment, ask Yoram. I'm just a social media goddess. Um, <laughs> Actually, I need more photos of you because I have many selfies of myself. That's that's what I'm doing. So don't don't photo shame me. Um, <laughs> Okay, yeah, that that was my fun fact. Uh, I think I, I have a couple of more things, but I think I'll keep them for later episodes because they're not really um, like uh, Christmassy or urgent. Um, okay, also, I have a cat fact, which is kind of Christmassy. I also have a Christmassy cat fact, but do yours first. Or should I? No, I mine is very lame. One. I want to do my lame one first so we end on a good one. Mine is also lame. Off you go. <laughs> my mine is that the Christmas cat arrived in Reykjavik. Oh, I wanted to do an article on that as well. I thought like it's not plant content, but it does align with our like general yeah. aim in life. Is but to do you know then what Christmas cat is? 
yeah, it's this terrifying huge cat which like goes around the countryside and is like it's it's scary, like it's big and mean. No, like it's a giant light ornament in the shape of a car that's on display a second year in a row. It's five meters tall and in the Reykjavik city center now. No, the reason that this is a thing is because there's a tradition, I th- I'm sure it's in Iceland, of an actual Christmas cat. Well, it did say and that on a tourism site that I found when Googling <laughs> for Christmas cat. <laughs> yeah, it's probably not a big sell. Like, and by the way, we also believe in a giant terrifying cat, which will kill you if you come to our country as a tourist. Okay, yeah, I, I just know of the light ornament, so you know more about like the crazy side of the story. <laughs> I think it's one of these, um, like Krampus, one of these kind of Christmas, not particularly nice things. And it used to, I think it used to eat children who were naughty, but I might be wrong. Okay. Uh, so you do your cat fact now, which is probably better. This is from my father, who often communicates with me by email by just sending a single link in the subject line. I think I've complained about this on the podcast before <laughs> because I love to complain about my parents. Um, so he sent me this one and it actually had a subject which was cats! exclamation mark, And then it had a link in the body of the message. So that was great. Um, and it was just a link to a bored panda site because... Also, fun fact about my father, every morning he opens up my communications, like my blog, my sister's blog, and Bored Panda. That's like when he gets on his computer, those are the sites. I think he also has some other like baby animal sites. He really likes any any subject which has cute animals. Um, yeah. Anyway, this is from Bored Panda, and it basically says that researchers carried out a study in a Dutch shelter which involved 19 cats which lived in the shelter um, and they also had some boxes and they unsurprisingly found that cats like boxes <laughs> um, and so they surprised. also <laughs> they also suggest that the hiding box as they call it so it's not just any box it's a hiding box appears to be an important enrichment to the cats um, and helps them to cope effectively with stresses in a new shelter environment. Um, so I think this is linked both to cats, which is a very important message for us as science communicators, is to work on the pro-cats propaganda council, um, but it's also linked to Christmas because, as you know, boxes are involved in Christmas. Yes, <laughs> yes. Or at least in boxes. I don't know. I'm trying. Damn it, I'm trying. Um yeah um get your cat a box for christmas especially if your cat has been looking stressed recently okay (laughs) and i would like to follow that up with a a small personal story which is that i've just moved into a house share and honestly i had to find the house share without knowing anybody about the person because i was moving continents and i didn't know anybody in london who i could live with so i used one of these apps to find the person and a large amount of the reason I chose to go to this house was that the person had a cat. So now I am kind of like in a stepmother kind of position for a small cat. Um, the cat is very cute, but the cat is terrified of me. So I am working on maybe I'll bring a box into our house environment to reduce the stress of said cat and make <laughs> it love me more. That's my aim. Oh, very nice. Um, so shout out to Ella the cat. Ella, if you're listening, I love you and I want you to love me back. I think we it's it's time to end. It's time as you can tell from our voices <laughs> to end. Yoram and I have clearly exhausted ourselves by talking bullshit. Yeah. Um. Thank you for listening, everybody. Please turn the bells off, Yoram. 
No, yeah, like the for, at least for the ending, Tegan. At least for the ending, we can be <laughs> can a little bit festive. Can you turn them down a little bit? Turn them down. Um, yeah, I can do that. Uh, I'm fairly sure that I can do that. Better? Okay. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Um... <laughs> That was Plants and Pipettes, the podcast. Um, thank you all for coming and listening to us. Uh, please do all the rating stuff for us on your appropriate podcast downloading apps or systems or wherever. We're not on Or just write Spotify. it on a, on, a, on a wall on a house. Just write like Plants and Pipettes podcast, five stars. Write it on like your neighbor's house. Don't make crimes. Um, yeah, only five stars. Or if you really don't want to give us five stars, you have to tell us what's wrong with us. Um, but in a constructive way, because it's almost the Christmas period and I don't want to be sad over Christmas. Um. Um. <laughs> um, please make sure to check our advent calendar. We put a lot of work and time into this. And so far, um, I think oh. the responses have been, have been good. Um, but it would be really nice um, if you could also check out our Christmas uh, our ad advent calendar um, all through December until the 24th of December. So not really all through it, but like, what is it, like three quarters through um, okay. December. Um, check it Five out. It's on the website, plantsandpipettes.com. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so www.plantsandpipettes has blog posts. It also has a link to our podcast if you haven't already worked that out by listening to our podcast. <laughs> What else do we want to say? Oh, we also have Instagram and Facebook there. You can chat to me. It's um, plants, at Plants and Pipettes. And on Twitter, which is at Plants Pipettes, you can talk to me. Um, and I set up a, a site uh, like on plantsandpipettes.com, plantsandpipettes.com slash support. If you like what we're doing, you can find ways to support us there, um, which are like just supporting us by sharing our stories or maybe buy us a coffee. Um, that would be really nice because like as you can tell we we both really need a coffee right now <laughs> um and then what else is there i i don't know if we managed to get another episode out this year but we will you will really? certainly i mean you're traveling next week i am traveling next week and then it's christmas and then it's new year and then it's january so it's really um i literally was going to pack my stuff to take it on holidays with me but if we're not going to do it then i went to i won't pack it I mean, we can try. I mean, it would be fun. Like, you are in Australia and I'm in Munich or Austria, depending on when we record. I mean, we can try. Well, I mean, okay, let's, let's finish the podcast quickly now. Um, anyway, yeah. So, maybe there will be another episode. Maybe there won't be another episode <laughs> um, this year. Uh. But there will certainly be a, a new stuff next year coming up. So, be sure to su subscribe to the podcast on your favorite app. Um, it was a fun. It was fun to have been talking to you again, Tegan. Like, as were very lonely weeks for me, um, <laughs> just talking to my microphone, reading old stories, um, and I think we lost so many listeners. Um, you have no idea. And so I'm really happy that all of our listeners are back, that you are back, and with that, I think we can say goodbye. Our opening and closing music is "Caravana" by Philip Gross. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs>